Today on Act News Daily. So they, they do migrate uh, on jet stream. So there's all these factors that sort of play together to make the perfect sort of storm for an army worm outbreak. And that's happening right now across the Midwest, the Southeast and the Northeast. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Wednesday. Ashton, is today Wednesday? It is Wednesday, yeah. Okay. I'm really thrown off because this week has been a holiday week. So I'm really thrown off. My birthday was yesterday. I can't keep track of my date, my dates. And I'm heading on vacation this week. So that is definitely okay, Delaney. I am all over the place too. And I don't have the excuse of my birthday or going on vacation. I just I don't have an excuse. <laughs> well, that's okay, Ashton. It can't be your birthday every day. Can't go on vacation every day, although I wish I could. I absolutely love birthdays, so I totally wish it could be all about me all the time. But I understand that it's not, and it's certainly not that way on the Agnes Daily Podcast. Of course, we're always looking out for our producers out there and giving them some timely news. So why don't we go ahead and kick things off, Delaney? I know we have some things that just got released yesterday as well as today concerning USDA. So why don't we go ahead and talk some news? I'd love to, Ashton, uh, because we do have some pretty big news here coming out from the USDA today, and that is in regards to a new grant program announced by Secretary Vilsack on, mm, I believe, Tuesday afternoon. $700 million in competitive grant funding will be available through the new Farm and Food Workers Relief Grant Program to help farm workers and meatpacker workers with pandemic-related health and safety costs, and additionally, to recognize the essential role and costs borne by frontline grocery workers, $20 million of this amount has been set aside for at least one pilot program to support grocery store workers and test options for reaching them in the future. So that's one big piece of news coming out of the USDA. We also had a big piece of news coming out maybe an hour before we're cutting the podcast today, Ashton. Looking at drought impacts for ranchers and in response to severe drought conditions in much of the Western and Great Plains, the USDA announced today that it plans to help cover the cost of transporting feed for livestock that rely on grazing through their new emergency assistance for livestock, honeybees and farm raised fish program, otherwise known as ELAP for short. And this would essentially help cover transportation costs for drought-impacted farmers. Now, as you go through what area you are, it is going to be a little bit dependent upon the drought monitor rating that you're currently in because it does cover the cost of hauling water during drought. And this will change or this will expand the program beginning in 2021 to cover feed transportation costs where grazing and hay resources have been depleted in places where drought intensity is a D2 for eight consecutive weeks on the U.S. drought monitor, has had drought intensity D3 or greater, or the USDA has determined a shortage of local or regional food feed availability. So there are a couple ways you do have to qualify for that, but to look into this program in particular, you can head to fsa.usda.gov E-L-A-P to find more information or to sign up for the program, Ashton. 
You're exactly right, Delaney. Those are two stories that I was keeping my eye out on. And, you know, in addition to that last one about drought, the USDA has authorized other flexibilities to help producers impacted by drought through their risk management agency. So we are really getting the help, it sounds like. And I have some more things kind of concerning help here. I thought that this story um, was pretty interesting because it seems like the Biden is administration is taking a tougher stance toward meatpacking companies. As it says, they are causing sticker shock at grocery stores. In a blog that the White House put out on their website earlier today, I believe, they said that these four companies, the big four, as we know, that control much of our U.S. processing meat market, And President Biden blamed these companies for rising food prices in that blog. As part of a set of initiatives, the administration is said to funnel $1.4 billion in COVID-19 pandemic stimulus money to small meat producers and workers, administration aides said in their post. They also promised action to, quote, crack down on illegal price fixing. And and Delaney, you know, we've been talking so much about price fixing and the big four. I feel like it's a, a lot of stories have been hitting the headlines and a lot of policy has kind of been going on concerning meatpacking and, and those kinds of things. I feel like it's starting to to build up and up and I just can't keep track of what all is going on at this point. Yeah, we need a spreadsheet at this point, Ashton, or some sort of flow chart to tell us who's been uh, indicted, who's been alleged guilty, who's paid money, what industry, because there's a lot of it going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm beginning to get a little bit confused here. I was in my ag law class earlier today, and we always kind of start out the class by, you know, talking about, you know, what's been going on. And I really wanted to kind of pick the brain of my professor on all the bills and legislation that are going through right now concerning meatpacking and price fixing. And I didn't have the guts to do it today, but man, I just feel like there's so much going on. I cannot keep up. Ashton, we got to get you more confident so we can do that. I know. I'll have to do it one of these days. So folks, you'll have to tune in on Friday to see if I do it because I have that class on Friday again. So um, I'm going to build myself up to do so. Good. Okay, perfect. Well, Ashton, switching tracks here just a little bit. Um, got a quick update for us on as related to Hurricane Ida. We have confirmed as of last week, of course, that ports are reopening, but very little grain movement is actually going out of the Gulf Fort for the week ending September 2nd. Virtually all of it was moved to other ports. About 1.1 million bushels of wheat and 3.7 million bushels of corn were actually loaded out at Gulf Port terminals before the storm happened. So there was some sitting there ready to go. But otherwise, we really haven't seen a lot of movement coming out of that port. And what's more so is that Oil refineries are also starting to quickly come back online here. So that is positive news, I would say. Latest data shows that roughly 1 million barrels per day of refinery capacity are still offline. And so full capacity, we're not there yet, but they are pushing pretty hard here to get that back up and running. About 79% of the Gulf's production happens down there in that area. And 
still down about 79% overall. So starting to get back up and running, but overall things are looking here to get back up and running. It sounds like about 80% of New Orleans is back up and running as far as a electricity standpoint. So that is good news for those folks. But um, starting to see some exports pick back up again, and we got to find a way to get those out of the country when that time comes. So going to be continuing to have to evaluate the aftermath here of Hurricane Ida. And that aftermath isn't just, you know, down in Louisiana, Delaney. I shared an article on my personal Facebook talking about how, you know, these after effect storms that, of course, roll through some of our landlocked states. And I know New Jersey isn't really landlocked, but, um, you know, for them to be seeing such big storms, you know, from something down in the Gulf, uh, I think is pretty um, traumatic, I would say. But I, I shared this article talking about how um, one of the biggest dairies, I believe, in, in New Jersey, how they mm-hmm. everything was like gone, wiped out totally. And I just think that that's, um, you know, an awful thing, but also kind of amazing that Mother Nature has a way of working that way. But uh, yeah, going to continue to work or continue to see how the uh, work is going down in Louisiana and really across the whole U.S., Yeah, absolutely, Ashton, because it's going to be a story that we're going to have to continue to watch here as we do head into harvest. And I know this week, of course, markets were closed on Monday. So we did see crop progress report come out yesterday afternoon instead. Ashton, I'm going to run through these numbers here real fast. And the big headline is cotton was significantly adjusted to reflect Hurricane Ida's storm damage. And so for The first report of September, we saw cotton conditions receive a significant cut down to 61% now, just sitting in good to excellent condition, a 9% reduction from the week prior. And overall, we saw corn ratings cut just one percentage point now at 59%, sitting in good to excellent conditions. And in soybeans, we received a slight boost with 57% of the crop in good to excellent conditions compared to 56% the week prior. So all in all, the big story there was cotton. But of course, we do have this month's September WASDE report coming up, Ashton. So we've got to keep those numbers in mind as well. And if you don't have any other news, I'd be happy to run through those numbers here quickly, Ashton. Yeah, go right ahead. Perfect. So. As far as Friday's WASDE report goes, a lot of analysts are indicating that they think corn acres will potentially see an increase as well as yields for both corn and soybeans could be adjusted higher. So the markets already are trading this news. The big surprise is going to be if, in fact, we get this news followed by some sort of additional surprise, like perhaps we see acres cut or we see acres increased more than what analysts are expecting. But for now, average trade estimates is putting the carryout for the 2021-22 crop at a 1.382 billion bushels for corn and a 0.19 billion bushels for soybeans. So overall there, we should see per analyst expectations, an increase in soybean carryout, but a decrease in corn carryout compared to the August report. Of course, the big question really is going to be yields and acreage. And 
average trade estimate for the September WASDE report when it comes to yield, corn is now being expected to come in at a 175.8, which would be higher than the August estimate of 174.6. And soybeans are expected to remain pretty much the same at a 50.3 bushels per acre yield. So could be an interesting report on Friday. Ash and you and Dawson are going to get stuck uh, tackling that one, but I'll be here to help you guys if you need it. Well, you won't really be here since you're going on vacation. I'm definitely jealous of that. But um, with that, Delaney, I got to say, I'm excited to see if we can tackle Wazdy on Friday. And I'm excited to hear about the markets for today. What do you say? All right, Ashton. Well, let's do that. And as I mentioned, we're starting to see some continued sag here from expectations of WASDE's potentially bearish report. Yesterday, we saw things slide lower, and we continue to see that at least somewhat in the grain markets for today. December corn down a half a cent to close at 5.10 and a quarter. November soybeans, however, did finish a little bit higher today, adding two and a half cents to close at 12.79 and a half. Chicago wheat today did slide lower as well with the December contract down 10 and a quarter cent to close at 709 and a half. Hopping over into livestock today, we saw weakness across the entire protein complex as October live cattle shed 65 cents to close at 123.10. The Dece down 90 cents to close at 128.65. And in feeder cattle for today, the September con, excuse me, the October contract down 77 and a half cents to close at 159.27 and a half. The November down a dollar forty-five to close at one sixty-one forty-two and a half. And in lean hogs today, the October contract down seventy-two and a half cents to close at eighty-seven thirty-seven and a half. And in Dece contract today, cutting twenty-two and a half cents to close at eighty fifty-five. Wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures. October today added 14 cents to close at 17.59. The November also in the green, 18 cents higher to close at 17.65. Ashton, without further ado, fill us in for who we're talking to for today's interview. Today, we are going to be tuning in to some audio that you recorded with Kevin Rice. Well, folks, we are going to be talking about an interesting pest that's had literally centuries of history, talking about the armyworm today with Dr. Kevin Rice, assistant professor in the Division of Plant Sciences at the University of Missouri. Kevin, thank you so much for joining today. Certainly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, Kevin, as I alluded to there in the beginning, armyworms have been around for quite some time, but maybe just recently have been within the last couple of decades, been getting a lot more publicity in agricultural news. Let's start out first, though. Talk to us about the history of armyworms, because I think it really is fascinating. Sure. So armyworms are native to uh, the Americas. So uh, they're, they're a pest that's, uh, that have been here uh, since, since we've settled. And uh, they, we've had outbreaks of them in the past. So if you go back to some of the literature, if you look at newspapers, even from the 1700s and 1800s, they'll talk about armyworm outbreaks decimating our crops in the United States and South America. And right now we're, we're experiencing another uh, pretty tremendous outbreak. Uh, it's, the, it's the highest outbreak we've experienced in at least 30 years in the United States. And so, Kevin, as you look at, I want to do one other foundational question here before we talk about current day. What is an armyworm and why is that a concern for farmers? 
So, you know, there's a there's several species. Armyworm is sort of a group of uh, moths and caterpillars. And we're talking specifically today about the fall armyworm. But they get their name because they decimate one field. They're, they're eating machines. They're one of the fastest growing animals on the planet, which means they have to eat a lot. And they get that name armyworm because when they finish consuming all the resources in one field, they will march together as a group to another resource and invade another field, sometimes overnight, causing severe economic damage. And so, Kevin, we actually found you through an article that you were quoted in on Brownfield Ag News looking at current conditions right now. And you said that the southeast and northeast are becoming inundated with fall armyworms. How have we gotten to this point? So it's sort of the perfect storm. And there's a lot of factors that are associated with an outbreak year. Um, there's uh, climate conditions uh, in, 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 our, in our extreme weather conditions that we are experiencing because of global uh, climate change uh, might be playing a factor. Uh, specific little weather, weather patterns and microhabitats can also affect outbreak years as, as far as moisture levels. And uh, third is wind conditions. So they, they do migrate uh, on jet streams. So there's all these factors that sort of play together to make the perfect sort of storm for an armyworm outbreak. And that's happening right now across the Midwest, the Southeast and the Northeast of the United States. So it's happening right now. What is it doing to our crops? So armyworm or the fall armyworm actually is a a real generalist herbivore. It actually feeds on over 350 different host plant species. So it feeds on vegetables. It feeds on field crops. It it feeds on fruits and ornamental and grasses. So uh, once they arrive and they're in these outbreak levels, they, they aren't too picky with what they eat. And they basically... Uh, can cause severe economic damage. So in our pastures right now in in the Midwest, the most of the calls that I'm receiving are they are in alfalfa and pastures. They are, you know, if if you don't scout your fields, uh, you can have up to 70 to 100% field losses relatively quickly uh, with fall armyworm. And Kevin, I feel like, especially in countries like China, this is a common problem that I recall talking about. But as far as the United States goes, I don't feel like this has been a problem we've been talking about until maybe the last couple of years. Why is that? So, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a, it, it, it is an outbreak species based on weather patterns. And, and one of the things that may be contributing to this is our warmer, milder winters. So fall armyworm only survive throughout every winter in the United States in a small pocket in Florida and a small pocket in Texas. And then every single summer and fall, they sort of reinvade the entire North American continent all the way up into California or, or Canada. And uh, we think that these milder uh, winters are allowing more army worms to survive in farther northern climate. So they're getting a jump start possibly, and they might be leaving some of their natural enemies that control them like parasitoids and viruses uh, in the in the further southern region that they were typically overwintering in. And so when you think about current day, how do we go about actually preventing this from happening? If it is so dependent and so related to weather, is there any way to get rid of them or prevent the spread? Um, so this particular species, I, I wouldn't 
you know, it's, it's hard to predict how many outbreak years you're going to have or when they're going to occur. For growers or homeowners, the most important thing you can do is, uh, you know, regularly scout your fields. Uh, and if you notice the armyworms when they're very young, um, you can treat them with insecticides. Uh, and th that's relatively effective at knocking them down. If they get too big, the chemicals don't work as well. Um, another uh, another tool we have at the University of Missouri, we have a, a trapping network with uh, pheromone traps set across the entire state. And we report weekly captures on that network. So you can kind of get an idea. It doesn't replace field scouting, but it gives you a sort of idea of the population that maybe they're active or what generation uh, number we are currently experiencing throughout the state. And Kevin, as you turn your attention to talking internationally, I know you mentioned before we started recording today that this is maybe a serious issue in the United States, but even more so when you look at some of the other countries around the world, especially Africa and Asia. Tell us a little bit more about what armyworms are doing in those two areas of the world. Sure. So in, in Africa and Asia, it's an invasive species. So it's somehow made its way to uh, Africa, and it was first detected there in 2016. And again, with an invasive species, when it establishes in a new area, it doesn't have the wasps and everything that I was talking about that knocked down its population in Africa. So they have exponential growth. They have higher populations in Africa. And it's, uh, it's causing a real problem with food security because it does eat corn. Uh, and they don't have as much of the uh, equipment for spraying or, uh, or combating some of these, uh, these agricultural uh, pests. And Kevin, I wanted to ask too, when you compare armyworms, compare those to other pests or diseases, how do these rank as far as maybe their impact to the crop? Um, these ones are a little harder to predict. So, you know, we do have a lot of invasive insects in the United States and uh, that, that, that my team actually works with. Uh, armyworms are a little unique because of that marching behavior. So when we're talking about things like Japanese beetle or, or some of the some of the kudzu bugs, uh, you can scout your fields and you sort of uh, can can predict when they're going to be active and when they might show up. Uh, but armyworms, because of that marching behavior and because they ride the jet stream and sort of drop into fields like paratroopers, uh, you have to scout more regularly and you have to really keep an eye out for the beginning of an infestation. Okay, wait, I want to go back for a second there. You created an interesting visual in my head, at least, and that's um, that they're dropping into fields like paratroopers. Explain to us a little bit more about how that works. What 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 happens when they're in the jet streams? So it's, it's really an interesting behavior they have. When they emerge in these overwintering places like uh, Florida and Texas, 90% of them, when the females emerge, will fly straight up and catch the jet stream. Uh, and they'll move hundreds of miles, in fact, they recorded that uh, one, you know, females can actually move from the state of Mississippi all the way to Canada in 30 hours. So they're, they're not doing that on their own flight. Uh, they're basically just riding the lower jet stream. And at some point at randomness or associated with wind patterns, they will drop and then they'll look for a good place to lay their eggs. So that makes it very hard to predict again when and where they're going to show up. Well, this has been certainly interesting. I've learned a lot today, Kevin. So I appreciate your time and coming on and chatting with us on the podcast for today. Thank you.
thanks again there to Kevin for coming on and chatting with us. Or I say us, it was really with you, Delaney, but definitely an interesting conversation for sure. It certainly was, Ashton. And he's very passionate about army worms. And to be honest, I didn't know a ton about them before today's conversation, other than I knew they were pretty pesky. And we've been hearing about them more and more in the news. So it's interesting to get some of the history and the backstory there. So I certainly appreciate Kevin for coming on and chatting with us today. You know, Delaney, I didn't know very much either. And I was a little bit nervous. I didn't know how the conversation was going to go, but sounds like it was very interesting as you said, but I hope that our audience also thinks that our interviews are always interesting because they can listen, of course, at agnewsdaily.com. And if they don't find them very interesting, they can always make suggestions on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at agnewsdaily. So we can go ahead and give them something that they would want to listen to. But with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.